Hello, and welcome to Think Fit, Be Fit podcast. My name is Jen Schwartz. I'm the hostess and creator of this podcast, where we believe that exercise without injury and without pain is not a small goal. It is a vision for your health. And one of our main goals in this podcast is to change the way we talk about exercise, the way we think about exercise, and how we view our bodies. We are capable of so much strength and agility and physicality, even with old injuries underneath the surface. So I'm here to share the secrets that I've learned in uh, you know, 10 years of practice as a muscle activation technique specialist and another five to six years in um, training athletes and a total of 15 years with athletes and uh, as a trainer and injury prevention specialist. And this, these conversations that I'm having, especially this one and our first part of uh, the interview with Gregory Gordon, is the reason why I started this podcast. I truly want to see how we can change our exercise with knowing more about how our body works. And so this is an invitation to have a choice in how you exercise. I believe that this is a great time, April 6th, 2020, to reframe and focus on your relationship to fitness which means I also believe that we don't have to settle in a home routine that is understimulating and underwhelming. So this episode lays out some awesome critical thinking points and pieces about exercise and training for sports that you can apply now while reframing this new relationship with exercise and fitness in your body. And you'll be able to apply it when our gyms and fields open back up. So the theme of this episode is how learning the skill of an exercise or a sport skill can contribute to being injury-free, confident, athletic, and fit. We also have another episode that was released on April 1st, 2020, and you'll hear a recap in the first part of this uh, conversation, but it's also in the show notes I thought that one was just so nerdy. So if you want to get your exercise nerd uh, fix, that is definitely an episode for you. This episode is more about the like the bigger application of this information and will be helpful to any coach, personal trainer, anyone who invests in their exercise or wants to invest in their exercise. So yes, this is a lot of different types of people that can benefit from this and that's the thing like if we learn the structure of how our body works and how our body learns and how our how that can affect our uh, exercise and how it can affect living pain-free and living and and like being as athletic as possible it's, it comes down to like how the body works and how you apply the information. So that's why it can, it, it, this is applicable to so many different types of movers and active people. So in this episode, we are covering 
the importance of having a bandwidth of error, meaning like in the learning process, and how virtual training can be more effective exercise than in-person tactile with your trainer exercise. So this is really an interesting topic. I've spoken before about how this can affect us emotionally, like how the trainer, um, how they say something to you or the whomever the in their class can impact the outcome of your exercise. But this is like a whole nother level of that, like how um, essentially the body learns. And I'm just so excited to share that information with you guys. So we talk about tactile and verbal feedback when it's most helpful. And so that's, I'm piggybacking on something I just said. The One of the really fun things that we talked about, and um, I'm really interested to do another whole entire podcast with Gregory on this, is electrical stimulation. And it's just basically not the same as teaching the muscles. So if you know any, if you've had any of, um, it's called e-stim or electrical stim, and you'll usually see it at the, the physical therapist or the athletic training um, office where they just put these electrodes on you and shoot electricity into your muscles to get them to fire isometrically back. So um, I think that's a really fun conversation to have. And so I just want you to keep in mind as you're listening that you can learn and do so many things at any level of your fitness. This doesn't just apply to beginners. It applies to high-level athletes. This is the same stuff that I would teach any of my NFL or, um, you know, highly competitive soccer players. I would, t- I would be using this information in my practice. And that's because we are um, beings that are really good at learning and moving at the same time. And like, once you like can grasp the inner workings of that, there's a whole new world of exercise out there for you. So if you'd like to talk to Gregory yourself, I want you to contact him on Instagram. I'm trying to get him more active on here. I'm a friend and a coach and a <laughs> um, you can find him at exercise underscore intelligence i-n-t-e-l-l-i-g-e-n-c-e and the ironic thing about this whole situation of the pandemic and whatnot is that you have access to some seriously high level practitioners right now like I would want to get an appointment with Gregory. I'd have to do it a two months out and he would legit be scrounging for time for me. And I would travel um, from DC to Manhattan to see him. And um, now he's just readily available. So as soon as this happened, I'm advantageous and opportunistic. And I just jumped on it and said, oh, my God, please share the with the world, like what you know about how the brain and body and muscles work. 
Um, so anyways, that's uh, at on Instagram, exercise underscore intelligence. I need you to also go to the show notes or go to his Instagram and download the white paper. And so we, re- we do discuss this in the podcast, this one specifically, and that is called The Path of the Conscienci- Conscientious <laughs> Observer by Gregory Gordon. Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed I can't say that word. Um, so uh, it's the white paper. It is in the show notes. It's 11 pages. It's totally worth your time. It's a wonderful piece of writing and effort. Um, we also, uh, you can find him um, at exerciseintelligence.com, I believe. Um, and anyways, um, my handle on Instagram, some of you might know, at impact underscore your underscore fitness. And I really hope you enjoy this. I loved all the feedback that I got from the first podcast. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, really smart people reached out and I got to even meet people that were in his program at Columbia University. And it's just such a pleasure and it's such an honor to like co-create along people like this. And I have to just say it one more time. Conversations like this are the reason why I started this podcast. Um, Have a great week and I hope to see you on Instagram or Twitter. I love Twitter at Jen Impact, two N's, J-E-N-N-I-M-P-A-C-T. And please like, subscribe, leave a review on iTunes. That would be great because more people need to have this type of high quality information about their body and about their fitness. Awesome. All right. So motor learning, that was such a, for me, really engaging. I love, you know, dialing in and really asking what it is that we're doing with this exercise. And the listeners are here to either develop their own practice as a trainer or develop a deeper connection with exercise. And that information that we covered surely does that, absolutely. But I wanted to kind of just go over a few bullet points about what we talked about last time. And yeah, and then like, just reintroduce yourself just in case nobody, uh, somebody didn't tune in last time. Okay. Well, I don't even know if I properly introduced myself last time. That probably no, I, I, I'll, I'll do it on the, I'll just read your bio. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, but so my name is Gregory Gordon. I'm the owner of Exercise Intelligence, which is a neuromuscular clinic in New York City. And I have a master's degree in motor learning and control. And I also am a muscle activation techniques specialist. Um, and yeah, to sum up, so we, we covered a lot of ground the last time. And just to sort of sum up some of the bullet points. So one of the things we spoke about was motor learning and motor control. So again, just to reiterate, so motor control is the study of the theories of how we organize and create, execute motion. So 
motor controller, there's mainly, uh, there's two main schools of thought. And one is that something called dynamic systems theory. And one is called general movement program theory or schema theory. Um, and we'll, we'll maybe get into those on a future podcast. But again, motor control is this very esoteric theoretical study of how we think the brain um, creates, organizes, executes motion. Motor learning is the very practical side of once you have a skill, how to acquire the skill, how to reacquire the skill, and uh, importantly, that motor learning is the, the way you demonstrate whether you've learned something is that you do a retention test after, pe- after a period of time away from doing the skill. And so a further subset is that there's a difference between motor learning and motor performance. And motor performance just means that you perform some, some type of motor act. And what we spoke about in the last podcast was that motor performance is, re, if it's, the, it's like a version of cramming for a test. So if I had to like perform some sort of dance routine at a wedding tomorrow, but I, <coughs> pardon me, but I, I don't care about retaining this dance skill, I would rehearse this dance like a million times the day before then I should be able to retain it for the next day. But if you ask me to do this dance in two weeks, I might not remember any of it. And if I remember any of it, it's probably not going to be performed very skillfully. Mm. Motor learning is that you practice a skill. You First of all, you break down different aspects of the skill. You practice it in a certain way. And then a period of time later, you perform the skill again. And then we would measure how well you've retained it based on, you know, certain measures that we would put in place. So we were talking about like shooting a free throw in basketball. Mm -hmm. And so let's say I would say, okay, so we want to see at least four out of every 10 attempts. You, you, um, you get the, you, you shoot it in the basket. That's what we consider skillful. And if I wanted to maximize your ability to retain the skill I wouldn't have you do the same shot from the same position 10,000 times like cramming for the test like I would and if I only cared about the mode of performance. I would vary it even though a free throw is um, you know, not nearly as complex neurologically as like catching a pass, doing a slam dunk or something. I would still vary the way I would like slightly like from where you would do the free, fr- free throw. I would put some degree of variation in the practice schedule of doing the free throw because research shows robustly Mm. that variation in practice and the way you set up the practice schedules in terms of um, organizing like the different positions you might do the there's the there's a certain sweet spot depending on the skill of how much variation you put into the practice setting and actually your ability to to retain the skill later on. And the reason you retain the skill better when you vary the practice more often is that you create errors. So as you're learning a skill and you don't really know what you're doing yet and you're, you're trying it from multiple different positions and you're just sort of figuring out like, you know, the the basic uh, 
requirements that you need in order to perform the skill, making errors is a good thing because when you make errors, you're problem solving and you're learning. And that's actually what creates the learning. You're learning what's essential and what's the stuff you don't have to worry about. So like if I'm shooting a free throw, like what I have to worry about is like the weight of the ball, the distance between me and the basket, the height of the basket. Um, but I don't, if someone is sitting in the bleachers or not, that's not really a significant part of me shooting the free throw. Now, if they like throw something at me or yell something, you know, that might interfere with me a little bit, but essentially the variations I have in the practice setting, the more problem, the more errors I make in the practice setting, the more problem solving I do, the more problem solving I do the more skillful I will become and the more skillful I will become, the better I will retain and refine the skill over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And Um, just to really, I don't know, pinpoint this when we're taught, when we're talking about exercise, we want to think of it either that it can be both a learning learning experience and a physiological act. Yeah, so I I think depending on the person, you could look at it. So I think it's totally um, valid for someone like, for example, my accountant is always on me for the way I do my taxes, like the way I you know, I'm sloppy with using this credit card for that. And like, he wants me to do, and I, I, he wants me to learn essentially to like be my own accountant. Mm-hmm. And I don't want, I don't mm-hmm. want to take up the space in my brain to learn, to become my own accountant. That's why I have him. I just want to spend the money and do the least amount I have to do in order to like, you know, make sure that my business is run properly, but I'm not really interested in like, all the things he sends me to read and all these different, I just, for whatever reason, I'm not interested. So Mm -hmm. I think it's fine for someone who recognizes that exercise is, you know, a very important aspect to their health, but they, all they want is the physiological stimulation that should result in whatever adaptation they're trying to get, whether that's losing body fat, building muscle, some combination of both. So if, you just show up and you're just kind of along for the ride. That's fine. As long as like, you know, you, you, you probably shouldn't be trying things. Like if that's your approach to exercise, then you're probably not the right person to open up shape magazine or men's health and do like, you know, when you look at some NFL players or LeBron James workout, Mm -hmm. he's doing all this crazy stuff on a stability ball and standing on one foot on like two vibrating plates or something. (laughs) Like if you haven't really built up the, if you don't look at exercise as a skill, if you just kind of show up, you let people put weights in your hand or you just push a machine one direction and the other that's totally fine because you'll probably the physiological stimulus, assuming you're using enough load and controlling it well enough. And you'll probably get pretty, you know, pretty close to the adaptations you're hoping for, at least reasonably mm-hmm. close, but you would not be the right person then to like, you know, want to just arbitrarily then start doing like what you see LeBron James doing in his workout because you mm-hmm. haven't built up the skill. Now, if you're interested in looking at the other end of the spectrum where like 
to me, I have zero athletic skill, but if you watch me work out, mm-hmm. I look like someone that knows what they're, I move <laughs> at the, at the uh, risk of sounding arrogant. I, mm-hmm. I look somewhat graceful when I exercise just because mm-hmm. I've done, I've worked out for almost 30 plus years at this point, And I've done thousands of variations and thousands of repetitions and thousands of different surfaces and stable, my body moving or, and so I can adapt a dumbbell chest press in a million different ways. And I can, because I've built up a skill and I, because I've varied the way I've done it with load, with velocity, with the supporting surface, with my mm-hmm. eyes open, with my eyes closed, all these different things. So now I've got the skill that's really, and another thing we spoke about were these um, phases of learning the skill all the way from mm-hmm. the beginning, which we call cognitive, all the way up to the end, which we call automatic. So to me, I can do a dumbbell chest press and recite the alphabet backwards and do it with my, you know, I've, I've, I've made, I've exercised to me is the only athletic thing that I'm skilled at. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if it is your goal to like, you know, if, if you want to use exercise and treat it as a skill or like, you know, you want very specific adaptations to come from your exercise versus general health. Mm-hmm. Yeah, then you're going to have to do a little bit more than just showing up along for the ride. You're going mm-hmm. to have to invest in making errors and um, problem solving and learning from these errors. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, power, and it's very underestimated in this autonomous way of owning your movement, owning your. Um, fitness process. Mm-hmm. And so many people are wrapped up in what LeBron James is doing mm-hmm. for some reason. And they're wrapped up in how much it hurts. And they're yeah. wrapped up in how mu- the badge of honor of like sweat and, mm-hmm. you know, the box jump and how high, which there's all kinds of benefits to mm-hmm. that if it's appropriate. But it can't be truly appropriate if you don't have the skill to do it right yeah so if you don't have the skill and then you don't have the conditioning um you know that's a bad combination so and we talked about that we talked about that those three you know that that your look your viewpoint of exercise it (laughs) does it does encompass uh you know, cardiovascular mm-hmm. and uh, moving at a certain velocity mm-hmm. and moving at a, a, a less of a velocity, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so anywhere really along the spectrum to like, you know, again, this is my opinion, I want to be clear. Mm-hmm. Every human being needs to have some muscular strength. You should, in a strategic way, um, maximize your ability to recruit mm-hmm. motor neurons. So maximal recruitment to try to maximize your ability to be strong. You should also train to have power, which is a very high rate of tension development, which we said again, the mm-hmm. best uh, formula for that seems to be training about 30% of your one rep max. So that was my favorite part of the conversation. That was really cool. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, so just on a side note, I'm going through, um, for years, I've been meaning to take the NSCA CSCS exam just because, um, 
you know, the, the, the sports world places it, uh, you know, regards it very highly. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I think the material's okay, but they, uh, you know, they're, they don't subscribe to this. Like I was just doing a practice practice exam today. Mm. I'm so biased of thinking of like, and because I'm trying to also just, you know, do deductive reasoning with some of the multiple choice answers. When Mm -hmm. I see something asking about power and they give me an equation where like, I see the load is lower than another example, I automatically deviate towards that. Mm-hmm. And that's not how they think about it, by the way. So they don't, they're not, they don't subscribe for whatever reason, at least in the, in their quizzes and stuff to mm-hmm. 30% of your one rep max being the best formula for power, which again is fine because what we said, power, it's not, it doesn't mean a clean and jerk. It doesn't mean, all it means is work over time and all work is in physics mm-hmm. is force times distance. So Basically, you're just moving a load over a certain amount of distance in a certain amount of time. Yeah. So if you want to say, if you do a thousand pound squat and the first time you did it, it took you 10 seconds, and then the second time you did it, it took you five seconds, you've increased your power significantly because you did it in half the time. So it doesn't have to mean anything per se other than this is the formula for it, but... Um, and I think mm-hmm. I mentioned the name Comi, K-O-M-I. Mm-hmm. Interested. That's where the 30% of one rep max seems to be the sweet spot for training power. So cool. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that, that's, our, that's a full recap, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then what did I, w- I wanted to get into uh, what we were talking about was like, creating that the errors in movement are the opportunity that so many people miss. Like there's an opportunity to learn when you make errors. And, and, and we both kind of agree that there are certain types of instructors that are very guilty of overcorrecting and not giving the opportunity to learn. Yes. Because that would be the opposite of what we're talking about. Yes. Yeah. And that um, personal training in general, you have a one-on-one experience. And sometimes we're expecting, like our expectations can be all over the place, but we're definitely expected to have good form, quote unquote, and not get hurt. Mm-hmm. That's, I would think, I would hope that would be your first uh, <laughs> expectation. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And your second expectation would potentially be accountability. I would, I would think. Um, so, you know, how, what, what do we mean by that? Like what, what is it about certain instructors that overcorrect and don't give people the opportunity to learn and why that might be a problem? Yeah. So I think, you know, this came up off the record actually during our last podcast and because we were talking about, obviously, again, we're not talking in a vacuum here. This is, is this March 26th? Um, Mm -hmm. Okay. But we're talking (laughs) under the context of the coronavirus and how it's, you know, radically changed all of our lives. And one of the 
aspects that have come out of this has been the, you know, the incredible rise of online remote personal training, Mm -hmm. which is totally fine. And so, first of all, I want to make it clear that I think, you know, online remote training is fantastic. But if I had my druthers, and it's mainly because I've done 0.01% of remote training and 99.9% of my personal training in person, if I have my druthers, I'm much more biased to training someone in person. Mm -hmm. However, Mm -hmm. what I think a lot of people that are hiring someone online like they would be like, God, but if my trainer isn't here, then I'm not going to get like, I'm not going to get that feet that at least that tactile feedback. I'm not going to get him like touching my elbows or whatever, you know, I, I might not get as much verbal feedback. Mm-hmm. And so to be clear, look, if you're doing stuff where you, like, like I said, I think everybody strategically, and this doesn't mean every week, all year, but strategically, you should be doing things close to like your two to three rep max. If you're doing things that are requiring, you know, very heavy load or like very specific, um, you know, movement that could be high risk, then yeah, you may need us. You, you seriously may need someone there in person just to spot you. But assuming you're going through an exercise routine that someone is generally familiar with, mm-hmm. actually the last thing you have to worry about in terms of, missing the the in-person experience is them putting their hands on you to like give you tactile feedback about what you're doing. That part, it actually, it can be better that they're remote because Mm -hmm. like assuming they, you know, your camera is clear enough that they have a decent point of view. If they're not touching you, you're probably going to make a little bit more errors because like when, like there were times 10 years ago, if someone was doing a chest press, you know, my, my palms would be upturned and like under like on where their triceps are. And I might be sort of giving them like a little bit of like just a, a little shelf as they're moving their arms up and down. And that can be okay. But what I'm also doing is providing this, um, this extra form of feedback, which mm-hmm. is actually making them do a little bit less problem solving which is making them a little bit less skillful. And going back to what we just said, it depends on the person. So if the person is actually trying, if it's important, because sometimes we both had this experience, someone will hire a personal trainer because they want you to teach them a routine or several routines that they can do on their own. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if they're hiring you for that, they, they by default are going to have to learn because they're going to have to do it on their own. And they, like you said, they need to do it with good skill and they need to be able to do it without hurting themselves. Mm -hmm. So doing remote online training, I think like the last thing for the most part you have to worry about is not having your trainer there giving you tactile feedback and cues. This is going to, it actually can be a great opportunity for you to make errors so you can problem solve so you can become more skillful. Now, one of the things we didn't talk about last time, which mm-hmm. just jumped in my mind a minute ago, which is interesting. So just like, um, and this is a, sorry, this is a side tangent for a second, but <laughs> you know, as we are both muscle activation techniques specialists, um, mm-hmm. it's, I'll just speak from my own experience that a lot of times I'll work with someone and then, you know, who knows, something happens and they're in acute pain. 
and they'll be like, I want to come in to see you on Monday, but then I also want to go to like see the chiropractor, my massage therapists and my, mm-hmm. you know, they want to do everything on the same day. Mm-hmm. And I will say, look, you know, while you are in like, depending on when the injury happened, but like if it's, if we're in the first 24 hours of the injury, like just let the, you know, like your inflammation process do its thing. It's it like acute injury, like most, unless you've got a specific autoimmune disease, like mm-hmm. your body will, like it knows what to do. It's sending the right drugs to the right part of your body. Like just let it do its thing. And like, the worst time, in my opinion, to get like a deep tissue massage could be in this like first 72 hours of like an acute injury because the body's already doing its thing. Like just adding more insult to injury by pushing on that tissue directly. To me, again, in my opinion, it wouldn't be the best time. Yeah. It's not the best. Like just give it a couple and then we can start to like, you know, figure out how we're going to intervene with this injury. So the mm-hmm. same thing with exercise, like, in the beginning, we're overloading people with so many cues and so much tactile feedback. And like, Mm. we're, as they're doing it, we're telling them. So another. So potentially the massage is also in a way. Well, the massage, a massage is fantastic or it can be. Yeah. Just when are you going to do it? Like, you just don't want to do it. And again, my opinion, any massage therapist that is listening, that, wants to debate, like totally open to hearing other points of view. Just my opinion, based on the way the human acute injury networks work, that like, I want to get out of the way of letting it, I just want to get out of the way for the first 24 to 72 hours. Let it do its thing. Unless there's like, you know, it's a life or death situation. Um, But what I'm saying is that a massage is great. Anything can be fine. Anything can be great. It just depends on like, when are you using it at what time? And so applying that to an exercise perspective in terms of the type of feedback we give. So in the motor learning world, there's something called knowledge of results and knowledge of performance. Knowledge of performance is when I'm giving you specific information about your body saying like, straighten your arm, you know, grip your fingers, uh, straighten your leg. Knowledge of results is just after you've done the thing, I would say, okay, so you did, you hit seven out of 10 free throws or you got to 90% on this game. You're just giving sort of the, after the exercise, after the set is over, you're Mm -hmm. giving feedback about what happened in the set, but you're just giving basic data about what was accomplished or not accomplished. You're not giving the specific, uh, like, joint by joint analysis while someone is doing it. Does that Mm. make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, And so typically, and again, um, there could be a place for this, but what I typically see is that someone that's a beginner in exercise that doesn't really know what they're doing. And I know I was guilty of this in the beginning. Like when I first started as a trainer and well into like, you know, decades in, I wanted to make sure my clients knew, like, I wasn't thinking about a date I had later that night. I wasn't thinking about lunch. I was tuned in to what we were doing. And I was giving them a ton of feedback. And I was giving them tactile feedback and verbal feedback because I wanted them to feel like for the hour they were paying me for that all my attention was focused on them, which that's coming from a good place. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, what I didn't know at the time was that I was overloading them with so many different types of feedback and so much feedback. I was actually making them less skillful 
in making errors and learning what we were doing because like I wasn't really giving them the opportunity to make errors and fail and to have to problem solve. Mm. And so to me, the critical part is when you get a beginner, you just give them a direction and a velocity. I'd say, okay, I want you to push this to here. And I might say like, I want you to do it as fast as you can. I might say, do it at a self-selected pace. I might say, do it really slow, but I'm not overloading them with like giving them 10,000 different types of feedback and talking to them like a running narrative while they're doing it. And then when it's over, giving them even more like feedback. I'm trying to make it really simple for someone in the beginning. Ironically, someone like, again, I'm like making it sound like, um, um, some great athlete or something, but just <laughs> myself as an example, like I said, I consider myself to have an expert level in terms of weight training. Mm-hmm. So someone now, like if I was doing a chest press and someone was putting their fingers on my pec or putting their fingers on other parts of my body and they were like, I want you to use your intention and think about like, I can, I can mess with that stuff. And because like when someone gives this, what we call this knowledge of performance stuff, Mm -hmm. um, what typically happens is that like you, this can or can, this can be good or can be bad. But what the research typically shows is that you start to recruit more muscle. Now that can be bad too, because like if you're trying to throw something really quickly, like the more muscle that's contracting, that's actually slowing you down. But Mm -hmm. If I was a bodybuilder, if I were, you know, a lot of my weightlifting is that I'm trying to still build hypertrophy. I'm still trying to get bigger. So someone that like all this feedback and stuff, if you want to give a ton of feedback to someone, you can do that when they're at the expert level, because the the basic skill of doing the exercise is so automatic. They don't have to spend any of their cortical space thinking about the exercise. So my point in comparing this to the massage is just that if you think there's value in giving a lot of tactile, like tactile feedback or verbal feedback, and there certainly could be, you would actually do it more with someone that's like at the expert level. And -hmm. at the expert level, you could actually even start to mess with how much you're giving them because you're trying to like mess with like how quickly they can process information because once they're at the expert level, that's how you still get that like little bit better and better. Like you actually like, are sort of distracting them from the task itself and making them process information. I mean, for me, I spent, I spent like a year essentially learning how to improve my squat. And it has paid off um, really well so far in like, as far as like body composition goes and strength um, durability and just like my overall confidence in the gym. Um, And I think like, I remember at, at what point in the set that it would click for me. And it was only from, one or two cues. You know what I mean? It wasn't from watching the mirror and breathing and tensioning my shoulders and, you know, and watching my knees. Mm -hmm. It was only doing one or two things of those at a time. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that's like that. Does that paint the picture of what we're talking about? 
Yeah. So what I, I think, so it sounds like whoever, so when you say you took a year learning how to improve your squat, mm-hmm. you have a coach or was this self-instructed? Uh, I had a coach and it was both, I okay. would say, because they were open to my feedback as being, you know, I appear an expert. If you, you right. know. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds great that your coach didn't like, especially when it's like professional to professional. And mm-hmm. look, I, I work really hard at building um, uh, relationships with other health professionals just because I think it makes my, my work more interesting. I like learning. I, you know, there's certainly a business aspect to it. But I work really hard at trying to ensure someone that like, if I want to talk to them, I'm not talking to them because I'm trying to find a way of building myself up while criticizing them. Mm-hmm. But even still, <clears throat> I am human. The people I speak to are human. So professional to professional, it is really difficult to um, not want to show the other professional mm-hmm. everything you've ever learned and like you know how knowledgeable you are in something. So that sounds amazing to me that you worked with someone that was educated and confident enough that they just did what they do and didn't feel like they had to tell you everything they've ever learned about the squat while you're yeah. doing it in order to like, you know, build value in your eyes. So that sounds great. And it's it- funny because it's like she came on the podcast like three or four times mm-hmm. and two of those podcasts are still the most downloaded. And we just, oh, talked, okay. we just talked about squats and learning and and the learning curve that I experienced. Oh, well, I'll have to listen to it. <laughs> yeah, people love squats for sure. And, you know, squats are, so if you are going to spend your time learning any exercise, that would definitely, you know, because the risks are higher if you don't do mm-hmm. it. So that is one you would definitely, you know, want to spend more time actually learning. But yeah. It's getting back to something we sort of ended with the last time, which is, so what actually changes when you learn something? And what changes is that you go from this explicit type of memory where you like, you're literally saying, okay, like feet hit with the park, feet slightly, like you actually have to be like cognitively aware of every aspect of doing the thing Mm -hmm. where you just do it. And basically like your body learns to be more efficient with only using enough the amount of muscle that it needs to, you begin mm. to stand for like these abstract things in the environment for cues that like, you know, you, you wouldn't know to be aware of like when you're a beginner, because when you're a beginner, you're just sort of like looking down at your feet or. Yeah. And I, I, I want to say to the listeners, you guys can't, uh, you obviously can't see my face. <laughs> that is for me, like when we're talking about exercise being, feeling good and aligning for me, it is just the absolute best feeling to when I am able to execute the skill and do it with a challenge at the same time. Like I, I honestly, like that's what I want to sell people. That's what I want them to experience. So it sounds like you want to teach them the skill so Mm -hmm. well that they can automate it to the point where like, now you can add other challenges, whether the other challenge is velocity or more load or like, 
you know, you can go about it in a million different ways, but you're trying to teach them how to learn the skill well enough so that basically just performing the basic of the skill is automated to where they no longer have to like spend all of their conscious attention just performing the basic, yeah, very you know the the basic uh, framework of the skill. Yes, and it has it has to do with um, it, it goes for me. It always goes back to autonomy. You know, I said it earlier um, because I think that is the most valuable asset we can get from exercise, whether that be. Um, right now where we're, our health is a badge of honor mm-hmm. in this virus time, or, um, that when this is all over, you can walk in the gym with confidence and know that, and have confidence that you'll be there in three months without an injury, you know? Yeah. And I just think that's the secret sauce. Like what we're talking about is putting that all together. Yeah. So, uh, I totally agree. And then if you apply that to any sort of sport, you know, if, if if you are exercising and then you're hoping to transfer the adaptations you make in the gym, in a controlled setting to any Mm -hmm. sort of sport Mm -hmm. and being able to automate and because what automation does, it allows more, it, it increases your ability to process information. And so like mm. ultimately what, what makes LeBron James the best among, you know, cause you hear this stuff all the time. Like, like every player in the NBA, like, mm. you know, their skill level is really like very close. And then there's, so what makes one person, like if you just had LeBron James do a dribble, a dribbling drill compared mm-hmm. to the other NBA players, then they did a shooting drill and then they did a rebounding drill. Like, you know, he may or may not, end up in the top 10 and all the, when you like parse out these specific skills, he's definitely not the best shooter. You know, Stefan, Steph Curry is the best shooter in the NBA. So LeBron James isn't necessarily, or Tom Brady, like he's certainly not the fastest guy, but what they can do is they can look in the environment. They don't, they know the skill well enough. Mm -hmm. They don't spend any of their like brain activity worrying about performing the skill they are scanning the environment and they are thinking like literally milliseconds ahead of other people and they are seeing cues in the environment that you or i could never see because we would be overwhelmed by just trying to figure out like what what we're even looking at but even on a a fellow professional player like you'll see in basketball a million times where a guy looks like lebron james Mm -hmm. he's got a very similar physique and he'll start a play, and by the time he tries to go up to shoot, he gets blocked because, like, he just isn't able to process information as quickly and efficiently as LeBron James. So you can actually play with that in an exercise setting too. And you could, again, may a loaded squat might not be the exercise I wanted to do it with, but mm-hmm. you can certainly want some. Like I said, like if I'm doing a chest press. Mm-hmm. someone said to me like, all right, I want you to do a chest press and count backwards from 12 while you're doing it. Mm-hmm. Like rarely that's going to mess up my chest press, but because I know the skill so well, after yeah. a few sets, I should be able to do it reasonably well because I, d- I don't have to spend much of my cortical activities worrying about doing the pressing form. Mm-hmm. I can spend most of my activity and just being able to like, 
continue to challenge myself in processing information while performing a certain skill, mm-hmm. it makes me more efficient in terms of being able to do that in some sort of sport capacity. Mm. Okay. Oof. Yeah. Um, now we, the, the one thing we did not bring up that really brought us together in the first place, uh, for the podcast was the white paper that you, um, published. Right. Um, well, and, yeah, <laughs> sounds fancy. Put on Instagram is a better way. <laughs> <laughs> I put on, yeah. Um, I mean, you know, that, that I, I think it's helpful and I sent it over to one of our peers who also, you know, she just said, Oh, he's a little smart, you know? Um, and, (laughs) and, you know, we, I I think that kind of stuff, it just needs to be out there because the learn, like nobody's talking about the learning curve of exercise. And like back to what I was saying before, which was, you know, what is the difference between overcueing, overtraining, or not overtraining, overcueing, over teaching, and actually getting more out of the gym, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so can we segue that into that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I think it's- Thank you for bringing that up. And uh-huh. then just to summarize for anyone listening that is not interested in, in reading an 11-page white paper, <laughs> I'll summarize briefly here. So um, I, the, where I went to school is Teachers College, Columbia University. And um, by the way, this didn't come up organically, but so there is a teacher, there's a professor there. Her name is uh, Dr. Anne Gentile. Mm-hmm. And she's very significant to me for a few reasons. One is that what last podcast we spoke a little bit about these skills open or closed. And it just sort of means like one is that you get to direct the tempo of it. One, um, uh, sorry, one is that like, there's only a spatial component to it mm-hmm. and then there's spatial and timing components to it. Um, Dr. Gentile is if you are interested in like, okay, well, so like, what is the skill I'm trying to learn and how would I start that from day one all the way to like, you know, becoming an expert at it. She literally wrote this thing called Gentile's taxonomy, which is a step-by-step way of the way you would. So again, if you, if your ultimate goal was to be a basketball player, Mm -hmm. um, like she would start, okay, day one, you start by holding the ball and she, it sounds silly, but I recommend this highly to anyone that is interested in acquiring a motor skill mm-hmm. to Google um, Gentile's taxonomy. And she shows you in these various ways, how you take a skill from standing skill, like without even touching an implement, if there is an implement in the sport to like all the way up to like catching a pass on a fast break than jumping up on one foot and doing a slam dunk. She like literally gives you the pathway from day one to expert. Um, Mm. Also, she was, she did all this work at my school at TC, uh, at Teachers College, Columbia University. Mm -hmm. And she happens to be the mentor to my mentor, Dr. Paul Juris. 
Mm-hmm. So Dr. Gentile, unfortunately, passed away a few years ago. And every year uh, since she passed away, they hold a conference in her honor and they bring together like the some of the best, most cutting edge people in the motor control world mm-hmm. and they present their research. So this past year, they brought in someone from the NIH. I think she's the head biomechanics researcher. Her name is Dr. Diane Damiano. I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and what she's working on, she's working on these assistic, assisted robotic devices for people with cerebral palsy. Mm. So we've probably seen, all of us have probably seen some kind of version of it now. And some of them mm. look like the guy in Avatar that's like literally, you know, getting into like a full-blown robot. Um, <laughs> these are not quite that robotic there's like a belt and the belt is hooked up to like a um an anchor that's anchored from the ceiling and then there's it's it's a little they're like mm-hmm. sort of like leg braces that go down the side mm-hmm. uh, but and what she does is that she worked on this this first generation of these assisted robotic devices for kids with cerebral palsy and the idea was that if you put the kids in these devices, so children with um, cerebral palsy, and it depends if it's one side or both sides, but typically, you know, they'll have to walk with crutches and they'll have like, you know, they, their joints are almost frozen in a way where they don't get a lot of range of motion mm-hmm. because they don't have a lot of range of motion. You know, it really limits their ability to, to move efficiently and to even strengthen the muscles appropriately because it's re- the muscles are like very stiff. And mm-hmm. so the idea was that if you put a child into one of these suits and the suit sort of just sort of encourages and creates the range of motion in the lower body that um, A, the muscles will actually get stronger because they'll be, even though the suit's moving, that still will be stimulating the muscle in ways that... <clears throat> it's not able to do when they're outside of the suit and B that they should be able to like learn again, this thing we keep talking about, learn something from walking in these suits that should transfer to when you take the robotic suit off, building up the muscles, sort of teaching the brain what it feels like to walk normally. Mm-hmm. That stuff should transfer into like, once you take the suit off, getting a little bit better, um, motor control, a uh, motor, yeah, uh, that your gait is looks more efficient when you're outside of the suit. And what they found is that in this, this first generation of suits that when they took the kids out of the suits that they didn't get better and they, they were surprised and well, why didn't they get better? And what they found was that they didn't get better because it's the same thing we were talking about when a personal trainer or any sort of exercise professional is over giving you too much feedback that the the original suits didn't allow for errors. Like if they shifted their weight all the way to one direction, the suit was rigid enough that it didn't let them topple over. So they didn't have to learn how to like really like shift their center of mass over their base of support as much as they would in a real life setting where if your center of mass goes a little bit over your base of support, you're going to topple down. Mm-hmm. So essentially the first generation of suits was too helpful in, in that mm-hmm. they didn't really learn. Um, so what they, 
came away with is that in order to learn something and learn something in the context we're talking about, which is to get neurons to talk to each other, to fire together and wire together and get rid of anything else that might be extraneous to creating an efficient movement, that it takes effort, engagement, and error. Now, no one listening is probably going to be like, what? That's crazy. I never would have thought. Like, it seems pretty obvious when you hear it, right? Like, if you want to get better at something, you should probably be somewhat engaged. Um, You know, you should put in some sort of effort. But I think, again, the reason I was so interested in doing this podcast is I think... Because I think the first two parts, most everybody in the world gets. Like, I don't think there's a ton of people that want to learn any sort of skill. And they're like, you know what? I want to put in zero effort and zero error and still be really good at this thing. You mean I, the first two E's? Yeah. I think yeah. everybody is pretty on board with knowing that you're going to have to put in some of both mm-hmm. if, if you want to learn a skill. But, I, but what I think is the most surprising part, and what I think the part that does not, um, that we do not pay nearly as much attention to, because I actually think it's the most critical aspect, <clears throat> excuse me, is the error component. Making errors, that you have to make errors so that you can problem solve and try another plan. And so as you keep trying these different plans, you build up all these synaptic networks and then you learn like what's efficient and what isn't. And you, you know, you do away with what isn't efficient and you keep refining what is. Mm -hmm. So that to me is the critical component. So no matter what, so the white paper I wrote was taking a client story and applying that to someone that came in with back pain and looking at the interventions he was doing initially, which were pills, a little bit of stretching, a little bit of foam rolling, and looking at each of these variables and saying, okay, so any of these things might be helpful in terms of reducing back pain. Mm-hmm. So if you're someone that suffers from pain and you want to reduce pain, we know the formula that it's going to take effort, engagement, and error to change the way the, and again, we have to sort of separate acute injury. Like I said, for the first 72 hours, in my opinion, just let the body do what it's going to do versus chronic pain, which is now, you know, things inside the nervous system are altered. So if you want to alter the dysfunctional alterations, you need effort, engagement, and error. So Mm -hmm. the white paper is about looking at something like a Tylenol and how much effort goes into taking a Tylenol, how much engagement goes into taking a Tylenol, and how much error detection goes into taking a Tylenol. So uh, yeah. put a Tylenol, and again, the, the point is to, not to say, oh, don't take pills, Tylenol's bullshit. Tylenol's fine. It's great. Like we know that, I don't, I don't know exactly how it works, but we know that it mm-hmm. definitely lowers inflammation and it reduces the, the ability of these prostaglandin things to communicate and like it lowers your pain. And so it's not to do with anything that doesn't fit a hundred percent of effort and get engagement and error criteria. It's just to understand whatever you're doing and whatever it is that you're trying to do, we know that whatever skill, and in this context, we're, we're talking about like 
resolving your pain as a skill. Mm-hmm. It's just looking at it in the framework of this effort, engagement, and error. And so foam rolling, how much effort is in, involved in foam rolling? Well, there's a little bit of effort because like, you know, you have to sort of change your body position. There's a little bit of engagement because you're like feeling the sensations, especially where it's painful. The problem with foam rolling, there's not a ton of error detection because you wouldn't necessarily know like what's a good foam roll to a bad foam like because people are typically, if they push on something that's really painful, they tend to think that's positive. And it may or may not be. I don't know. Like a muscle, if you put direct pressure on muscle, mm-hmm. a muscle may be okay with that, like depending on the context. If you put direct pressure on an injured peripheral nerve, nerves don't like that type of tension. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know you have to really know what you're doing if you're applying that sort of stress to a damaged peripheral nerve. There are ways of tensioning it um, in in other ways, but you'd want to be like muscle tissue that gets a lot of blood flow, like may or may not respond reasonably well to a foam roll. Mm-hmm. But the point is, okay, so that's above a Tylenol in terms of effort, engagement, and error. But and again, I don't want to sound self-serving that I think muscle activation techniques is the best way or the only way, but it is a way when, when someone is doing a muscle test. So for anyone that doesn't know what muscle activation techniques is, but they listen to your podcast, is it fair to assume that they would know already about like looking at the muscle activation techniques website, something like that? I don't think so. I don't talk about it very often. Okay. So muscle activation techniques is a form of manual muscle testing where we're putting the joint in a certain position. The practitioner is trying to move your joint in a certain direction for Mm -hmm. the purpose of assessing whether the muscles that should be moving your joint in the direction opposite to the one I'm pushing, whether they can contract properly to oppose me. Um, And when I do that test, we're just assessing whether when I push in this direction, can the muscles that oppose me, can they contract with a certain amount of force in a certain amount of time or not? And so if they can't, so if I do a test and I'm able to move the joint and someone can't stop me, their brain is saying, huh, there's an error here. Like I know what I'm trying, because as again, I don't want to get too far down the rabbit hole of MAT, but essentially we're doing a form of muscle testing and Jen, I'm sure you've had this experience where you mm-hmm. do a muscle test in someone mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, I'm going to do it again. Do you know what I'm asking you to do? Do you know what I'm trying to do? And they're like, yep, yep. I know what mm-hmm. I'm trying to do. I just can't do it. Like, have you had that experience? Yeah. Okay. Fine. So they're aware, like you can say to them, look, I'm pushing you this. And we don't, it doesn't even have to be MAT, just any sort of, it could be you're next to your brother right now. And you say, I'm going to push you this way. Don't let me. And like, if you can move them and they can say, I know what you're asking me to do. I'm trying to do it. I just can't do it. So there's an error detection in the nervous so that your nervous system knows, huh? Like I understand what I'm trying to do. I just can't do it. So then your body. And again, we have a certain way with MAT, how we resolve getting the muscles to communicate with the nervous system better. But even if I didn't do any of that intervention, if I kept doing it to someone and I even maybe I varied the, the way I was doing it, over time they would have to learn from the error that they see. Like they can't stop me from moving them 
in this direction, they would figure out some sort of strategy. So eventually they would learn how to hold this position against the direction I'm pushing. Mm-hmm. So muscle activation techniques just happens to be a really um, efficient way of, of encompassing effort, engagement, and it has this error detection component to when a, when a muscle test is weak that and someone can't withstand the position, there's an error. And it's causing them to make their nervous system to figure out like another plan. Yeah. And I mean, I think I really want to point out that what I admire about you is that just by doing that and experiencing effort, engagement, and error, that that wasn't enough for you. You know, you've always wanted to know, why does this work? Why does this not work? What am I actually doing with this person? (laughs) (laughs) Whereas some of us don't, we just, we're we're here just to help people and we don't care what we're pressing on. We just, (laughs) um, and so I, you know, I just want to say for those of, the people that are out there who might admire me and like what I bring to the table. Uh, this is something that I admire in you and your practice and uh, sharing of information. I think it's huge. And uh, I think all of us in this space can learn a lot from that, just that intention and just that notion. And um, I've gained so much from your guidance on, uh, you know, learning about the neural anatomy better and it's helped every single one of my clients and that's helped them live a happier, fulfilling life. So, you know, for what it's worth, I just wanted to pause and like put my foot down on that comment. Oh, well, obviously, thank you very much. I sincerely appreciate it because I have the highest regard for you personally and professionally as well. But for me, it's, it's, you know, um, like I get a kick and I know my girlfriend does too. Like when we open the refrigerator and everything is like organized and like, you know, you look like an adult and like, you know, it just gives you this like, this like little blast of like endorphins or, you know, oxytocin, whatever you like, you just get this pleasant feeling. At least I do when I see mm-hmm. you. So it's really just that um, I get the same thing with like when I heard her speak and, you know, Dr. Damiano and she, she was going through, and by the way, I, well, the, the point of the story I didn't finish is that in their subsequent generations of equipment, it's much more, uh, like the onus is much more, obviously you're talking about kids with cerebral palsy who have a limited, um, ability, you know, their, their window of opportunity for motor skill is a little bit limited compared to someone that doesn't have cerebral palsy, but still the, mm-hmm. the further generations are much less uh, rigid in terms of like the error correction that now they're getting better results because like the suits just, uh, they don't make up for all your errors. But anyway, when she was talking, it just, it was one of those light bulb moments where I was like, you know, that, that really fits the MAT model. And it also helps explain so right now, electric stim, you know, every, there's always waves and fads and, 
And it's yeah, it ha- it's having a moment. A electric Sim is having its moment for sure. Yeah. Like I literally in my Instagram feed, <clears throat> excuse me, which I'm sure is similar to yours. The little red dots and yeah. Yeah, uh, mine most of my Instagram is like exercise, you know, motor learning, whatever, you know, neurological stuff and dogs. And so, <laughs> any of those, so I cannot scroll three, you know, three inches down without getting an ad for another electric stim. And, you know, electric stim is maybe even another because electric stim is really interesting. And this isn't to say anything negative about electric stim at all. It's really interesting, but there's a reason in my opinion, why if someone comes in and I just give them electric stim and then I don't put it in this effort engagement and error framework, I just don't know how, um, effective that electric it's just a bunch of stimulation that hopefully the body is gonna figure out what to do with but yeah we touched on it a little bit last time it's you know about that like we were talking about the quad and the hamstring and yeah so that's that's more of in a you know they just do all this wacky stuff in like in 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 research just to see it has a lot to do with figuring out fatigue and what's happening with whether things are fatiguing at the muscle level or if they're fatiguing more, but this for the electric stim in terms of a rehab setting. So if I'm just giving you electric stim on an area, like, look, that can be good. It can get blood flow to the area, certainly getting the muscle to probably like stimulate there. But like, I haven't made you learn anything from it. I've just stimulated some stuff, which is the same as like, me just pushing on it or me foam rolling it or me massaging yeah. it to say, look, it's not to say that any of that stuff is bad. All of that is good. If I'm getting blood flow to the air, if I'm getting stimulation to the air, that can all be good. However, if the goal is making sustainable plastic changes in my nervous system, how effective is just a la carte electric stim going to be? And I would argue probably not nearly as much as it would be if you figure out a way, if you use electric, if you say, look, I need to figure out how to use electric stim in a way where someone has effort, they're engaged, and then there's some error detection. So Mm -hmm. even if you don't want to do whatever, you know, acronym you come from, Mm -hmm. no matter what your background is, like that's how, in my opinion, you'd have, if you want to make, if you want the electric stim to really do what I think people are hoping it's going to do, which is to, to make sustainable neuroplastic change. Mm -hmm. It's not enough just to come in once a week. You, I'm working with 12 people at once. You lay down on the table. I hook you up with the stim and then I come back. Yeah. No way is that enough. Yeah. We have to figure out a much more effortful, engaged and a system that allows some form of error detection, which we'd have to figure out. Yeah. I definitely want to talk more about electric stim in another episode like that. Yeah. It's it's really, yeah, it's really interesting. And um, I don't know. Yeah. Right now it's, uh, it's taking over the world and we'll, we'll see where it goes (laughs) from here. But um, yeah, look, it's, it's a tool that can be really helpful. And the point of reading my paper or just, if nothing else from listening to this podcast, if you just say, okay, that makes sense to me that if I am trying to make sustainable changes in my brain, if I'm trying to change the wiring of my brain, these are the ingredients. 
It's going to take some effort. It's going to take some engagement. And it, there's got to be some form of error detection. Then that's all, in my opinion, that's all you need to know. And you can apply that to, to rehab settings. You can apply that to athletic skill. You can apply that to your exercise settings. But that's, that's, the, that's the take-home message, effort yeah. and error. I think I've got two thoughts. Um, one is that in the white in the white paper, you use uh, you talk about neuroplasticity. You use this wonderful uh, Marie Kondo um, analogy. Yeah, right, right, right. But what I don't, what I'm thinking is that the whole entire process of effort, engagement, and error is like if you want, if you've experienced her work and did that to yourself or your, your environment and you Marie Kondoed everything and mm-hmm. you walk into your space and you are like, this is refreshing. Mm-hmm. I can do better. I can operate more clearly in this space. That I think in itself is an analogy for what we're trying to paint the picture of. Yeah. Like, I get yeah. Yeah. Not just, not just the neuroplasticity, but the whole entire spectrum of, you know, um, what do you want out of your exercise? Yeah. And again, it comes back to this thing all the time of like, if you apply the effort, engagement, and error principle to your exercise, your ability to take an exercise from the cognitive level to the automatic level your ability to do that will be greatly enhanced. The more you can automate these skills, and we shouldn't—it it shouldn't be inferred that automating something is bad. That's good. That's the end of the rainbow with mm-hmm. the skill acquisition, because what that does, it allows you then all these other opportunities to mess with stuff and to keep, like you know, getting your brain to be able to process information, so you become more and more skillful, mm-hmm. um, and so all of these things sort of like lead into each other. Yeah. And I think when we're talking, you know, to the audience of think fit, be fit, I sell this as a way to engage with your exercise on a deeper level and to do it with, um, we all have accumulated some type of injury. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know anyone over the age of 30 that hasn't accumulated something in their body physically. Right. Um, and so I, I think if that's your goal, if you don't want to rely on um, fix me mentality, mm-hmm. this is the answer mm-hmm. in my opinion. And it's a process and it's not, um, it doesn't have to be a difficult one, but it has to be one where you're patient and sold into the idea of learning. Well, I think that's a really good point because it depends on the lens we're looking at difficulty at, because Mm. if it's too difficult, especially in the beginning, what happens? We know someone just gives up. Like it's just, you know, it's frustrating. Uh, And if it's not difficult enough, what happens? Someone gives up because it's like, it's not interesting to them. Yeah, they have to have a good experience on the bunny slope. So there's this fine line. And again, this goes back to our early conversation of like, your skill acquisition training should be different than your structure acquisition training. But like, there's a fine line of making things difficult enough 
physiologically to where like your body has to adapt to something. Mm -hmm. Um, and there's a fine line of making it difficult enough in the skill acquisition practice, um, scheme Mm -hmm. to where someone is (laughs) engaged, they're applying effort and they're making errors because if it's too hard or too easy, we lose interest. So that you've got to find that sweet spot in, in terms of exercise it's yeah. a double-barreled approach where you have to understand the physiology and understand like, okay, like how much stress on this tissue is like the right amount. And then you have to look at a skill and say, okay, how much practice of the skill and the different ways I would practice the skill, how much do I need in order to become really skillful for it? And then, you know, either with a trainer or on your own, you have to sort of match these two things up for a best fit um, plan. And then again, that plan should have some flexibility and adapt adaptability during the course of a year, you know, if that's the time frame you want to look at, um, because you, you know, it, things change and things are dynamic and you, you have to be able to adapt to, um, you know, you may, um, like a situation like now where like you may not be in a gym anymore or something, but, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and that's yeah. right. That's relevant. <laughs> yeah. So you have to take, even, even if you come up with the best plan for both, then you also have to be flexible and willing to adapt it because, you know, you, but the good news is if you always have this effort engagement and error philosophy, Mm-hmm. it's totally fine. Instead of using the leg press, you're doing a lunge or whatever, you know, like you just, you figure out a new, a new thing yeah. to do. Well, yeah. I mean, I think that is totally digestible and definitely something to chew on. Like, awesome. Yeah. Uh, as far as like this as a context and helping people, um, you know, make, um, know that they're making some good decisions with their health and their exercise, you know? Yeah. And I would say the one last thing is that as trainers, we shouldn't be afraid to let people make mistakes. Now, again, I'm assuming anyone that is intelligent enough to seek out your material understands when I say that, like, if you think someone is at risk of dropping a dumbbell on their face, I don't mean you let them drop a dumbbell on their face and give themselves a concussion. And then you say, well, yeah, at least you learn." Like that's mm-hmm. obviously not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about what I spoke about last time, which is you give good exercise instruction, which should be a couple concrete cues could be as simple as a direction and a velocity. Mm-hmm. Then you have a bandwidth of error that outside of that, you're going to either stop the exercise, you're going to pause it, you're going to add some feedback inter intraset because you feel it necessary. Mm-hmm. But we shouldn't be afraid to let make to let to allow people to make errors as long as it doesn't exceed the bandwidth of error that we that we are okay with. And the same thing for anyone that's listening that trains themselves or whatever they're doing, they should allow themselves, they need to set up their own bandwidth of error for exercising on their own and allow themselves to make mistakes and not get frustrated with mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mistakes are leading to actual better skill acquisition. 
assuming yeah, I, effort, engagement and error, yeah. you're not making a bunch of mistakes just because you're not paying attention or you're tired. If you are putting in effort, engagement and error and you're making mistakes, you're on the right path. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, hard for some people when they've um, gone over their threshold and they're just so scared to make mistakes or like they don't have, um, and this is definitely another topic, like a calm uh, approach to their exercise. Like they don't have confidence. So they overdo it themselves. They over self-talk. Mm. And I know I'm totally guilty of this. This is, that's one of the big lessons of like 2019 or so for me was to um, disengage a little bit in my self-talk in the gym mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and find and figure out what flow state meant, you know, and figure out what um, this optimal state of, of learning. So I just said flow state twice, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so for what it's worth, you know, if, if those are, I think those people are a really good candidate for like someone to work with you, you know, even if it is remote, like having that um, pain science edge in and the experience that you have. Like that, I think that would be worth somebody's um, time. Absolutely. Well, you know what I mean? Yep, I appreciate it. And um, they certainly can. But Yeah, so tell them where to find you. So if you would like to reach me directly, my email is gregory at um, exercise. You only learn this the hard way after you buy the domain and all the stuff. That <laughs> really long uh, email address is literally the stupidest thing on the planet. <laughs> do mm-hmm. get ready for this one gregory at exercise dash intelligence with a ce on the end not a ts as many people apparently oh, okay so um intelligence yeah i don't know but <laughs> <laughs> it'll be in the show notes i promise gregory at exercise exercise dash intelligence dot com yeah and my Instagram, which I am reluctantly finally starting to uh, use more often, and I, I certainly with this time off I have now plan on adding a lot more content to it, mm-hmm. is at exercise, then instead of a dash, an underscore, intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, so and based in New York and New Jersey. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Cool. All right. Well, thank you so much. Um, Yeah, I'm excited to get this out to everyone. All right. Well, my absolute pleasure. Thank you again, Jen, for Uh having me on. Um, And we'll talk soon. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Okay, guys, thanks again for hanging out this long. I invite you to check out um, impactyourfitness.net. And of course, um, join the newsletter and get all kinds of updates and thinking tools and offers on learning from me and with me. Um, I'm also really excited to bring a affiliate product to the podcast so that you can support the podcast and your health. And that product is called Ruvi, R-U-V-I. And this 
drink is actually just freeze-dried vegetables and nothing else. They have four different blends. Uh, They are just fabulous. There's no no additives, no uh, gluten, no sugar, and when you purchase them, you are supporting the show. So please head on over to impactyourfitness.thrivelife.com slash Ruvi, R-U-V-I. Link is in the show notes. And with your first purchase, you get the cutest and adorable shaker bottle. Um, so that's, I mean, for me, like that always kind of gets me, <laughs> but you know, I'm, I I love all things health and fitness and healthy, um, high quality product. So that's why I get excited about it. Anyways, thank you so much. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Gregory Gordon and there's more to come. Have a great week.